Welcome, everybody, to Answers News for Wednesday, October 6th of 2021. I'm Roger Patterson, joined today by Tim Chafee. And we think we've officially decided this is the highest average height. Yes. Tim and I are both over 6'6", six, six, so we think we've, we've reached that average height maximum for the show. I so think anybody so. else would just drag us down. So. Right. <laughs> Welcome Especially to this like history-making right? edition. Yeah, if, if Bodie was here, he Avery. Would drag, Avery would drag us way down if she were back with us. So Hope she's uh, listening. Welcome to Answers News. We've got a great studio audience with us today. And we are here in the Legacy Hall Auditorium at the Creation Museum. Join a beautiful day. And we have lots of great things that go on here at the Creation Museum and uh, one of those things we want to talk about, uh, some of the products that we produce, our VBS program called Zoomerang, which will be released for next year, is a great program for churches to use to reach out to kids in their community, even kids in their own church and families. This year, it's based on an Australian theme. I wonder how that came about. I'm not sure. We, we seem to have some connection with Down Under. Some guy named Ken Ham probably had a hand in that, and... <laughs> Uh, so it's a, it's a down-under theme. We've got Zoomerang, and they'll be learning about uh, creatures in the outback and, and using the that theme. Yep. And the, the theme is the sanctity of life. So they'll be looking at life from conception right up to the end of life and how we've all been made in God's image and that we all have value. Conception or fertilization? Oh, fertilization. Well, depending on the definition. Yes. <laughs> the new definition of conception is implantation. So you got to watch how you say it. They've changed the definition. So we, we say fertilization because it's the moment sperm and egg come together. Yep. And you Thank can, you for yes. helping me with that one. <laughs> oh, I did have to write an exhibit right out yes. here. So we had to be very So picky. we hope you've all had a chance to see the uh, fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit right out here that helps explain all those things. And we've got the new uh, permanent exhibit that's being installed soon to, yep. to deal with On the with way. Mm -hmm. Should be by next summer, if not sooner. All right. <laughs> And also, along those lines, we produce a lot of curriculum. Our, one of our newest adventures is the Answers Bible Curriculum for Homeschool. So we've had our Sunday School edition for many years, and I've been blessed to work on that project. And uh, Dr. Dana Sneed on our curriculum team, she has converted all that material into a homeschool edition. And so that's available for families now. So uh, you've got an opportunity to take that. Now, in the past, we've asked people to kind of adapt to that, mm -hmm. and that's a bit challenging sometimes, working with those types of things. Uh, our family homeschooled, and, and yours did some of that too. So uh, those are always kind of challenging things to do to adapt. So having something that's ready-made for the families who are homeschooling is always a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, it's a, it's a great benefit to be able to do that. Yeah, these will take you all the way through the entire Bible. It's yeah. not just taking one little section or a little thing here. It, it'll walk you all the way through the Bible over the course of years. So it's, it's great. Yeah, so having a, a true Bible curriculum that the family can gather around. Now, this is a K-5 study right now. We're working on middle school and high school versions of that in the near future. Looking to hire some more writers for that. Uh, so if you know anybody who's looking for a curriculum writer position, uh, point them to our website. We've got information there. Or I'll throw this in there, a content writer as well. Um, we're, <laughs> we're looking for somebody else to help out with the exhibits. So. Sure. Yeah. But you got to be good. All right. So <laughs> let's get to our first fluff article for today. Boston's famous skinny house sells for a nice fat price. So here we have this very slender house situated in Boston. And at the widest point, this house is only 10 feet wide. So I'm thinking by the time we add some walls in there, I'm barely fitting my California King mattress sideways in this house. Yeah, if you get through the doorway or anything, I'm, I'm not sure. So there's not even a front door on this house. You have to go through the side. 
And uh, this, this very small house has just sold for above asking price, as, many, as much real estate is, uh, $1.25 million for a house that's only 10 feet wide. Now, that's a pretty steep price for <laughs> something that small. Yeah. And this house has kind of an interesting history behind it. Does. It does. That, that's the funniest part of the article. Well, they what, it sold for 900000 just a few years ago, yeah. so it went up quite a bit. But uh, according, it's also known as the Spite House, and that was because the, let, the story had, is that there were brothers that owned the property there, and one of them had to go off uh, in the army. He joined the army, and the other one built this large house, taking up almost the entire property, so when the other one got back, he was upset that... He had nothing left to build on, so he built that to block the sunlight and everything else. And <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, that's interesting. We had some neighbors at a, a place we lived in Wyoming who did something similar, <laughs> building a dirt mound between our house and their property. So uh, not, not an uncommon practice. Hey, Roger, Wayne from YouTube says, just don't tell any tall tales in the tall news. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Bodie would appreciate that one. Yeah, we're going to hear today. a tall tale in a little bit. But. Yeah, we've got a couple of those coming yes. up as well. All right, our first news item takes us today to Turkey. 3D scans show boat-like formation matching biblical description of Noah's Ark, archaeologists say. And I saw this pop up in the uh, news feed a couple days ago uh, last week, and I said, oh no, here we go again, because we see this, uh, this particular claim, this particular site in Turkey popping up very regularly. So this was reported in the Christian Post, and it seems like about every nine months to 18 months, this particular site gains new popularity. And the claim here is that this is a, a rock formation that's actually preserving Noah's Ark as a, uh, a stone structure now. The Ark has been turned to stone. And that they've done new studies with ground-penetrating radar that proves that this is a structure worth looking at at least as a potential site for Noah's Ark. Yeah, well, they should have spell-checked the title and got archaeologists spelled correctly. But yes. <laughs> um, but be, beyond that, um, yeah, this is one that is the Duro-Pinar site is what it's known as, and it was popularized uh, quite a bit in the 1980s by Ron Wyatt, uh, who claimed to have discovered Noah's Ark along with a bunch of other uh, biblical artifacts or other things. And they, they, at the time, they did a little bit of a scanning on one end, and they claimed that, see, we found... Uh, what looked like beams underneath there, and this this is going to be the ark. And um, several Christians, geologists, researchers have actually gone over there. They've done research, and no, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's, none of it pans out. We've, yeah, we've got an article by uh, our own geologist, Dr. Andrew Snelling, uh, which was done in 1992. Wait a minute, to, 1990, that's, that's been a couple that, days. That was a good year to graduate high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's been a while already, and we've been we've been showing that this is not the ark. Sometimes people look at it and say, "You just don't want it to be because you have." We would love it to be. Okay, let's be honest. Every one of us affiliated with the ministry would love to actually find the remains of Noah's Ark. That would be fantastic. But what we don't need are false claims. Yes. We don't need people saying it is that and trying to drum up support or whatever they're doing. And I'm not saying these people are intentionally being de deceptive. That's not. I'm not claiming that. But we don't need to, to make up evidence to support Scripture. Does that make sense? We already have God's Word, and yeah. it's true from the beginning to end. We don't need to, to find these things that, that aren't accurate. Um, now, if we happen to find Noah's Ark, that would be awesome. I don't think that we will. Why? Well, it's made out of wood. And how many of you have seen things made out of wood that last for hundreds and hundreds of years? 
let alone 4,300 years. Yeah, I mean, right. you drive by an old farmhouse or the barn that's 100 years old, the barn's already caving in and it's starting to rot away. It's just wood doesn't do a great job out in the elements. And there's always people, well, but what if it was trapped in ice? Then that glacier moves and it rips it to shreds. Okay, yes. so you might find some timber in there, but it's not, it's not going to be a yeah, whole arc. We're not going to find anything intact. Right. So the, um, the details that you'll find in this article by Dr. Snelling deal with some of those initial ideas. And really, there's nothing, there's not a lot new. Now, the new claim is that recent studies that have been done in the last few years using ground penetrating radar, GPR, have showed that there are layers that are consistent with what they think would be decks of wood that would be inside the ark here. So they've secured um, more uh, funding research and opportunities to go in with permits and look at this site. Now, there's nothing wrong with analyzing these things and trying to understand these things better, but what we really uh, have to think about is the motives and the uh, intentions behind this. We know for certain that Noah's Ark was a reality. Why? Because it's recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And even if a skeptic were to see this wooden boat structure that was found as an archaeological artifact, does that mean they're going to believe the Bible and everything it says? No, if, if they would come up with some story to, to fit, well, okay, so maybe there was an ark, or maybe it was a local flood that got it up to this area, or maybe some people went up there later and built this thing. I mean, there's all sorts of things they would come up with it rather than, uh, you know what, I guess I better repent and, yeah. and believe. Because uh, believing these things that Scripture records for us is a matter of faith. We trust in these things by faith. Now, that doesn't mean it's a blind faith. Right. Okay? Yep. We have evidence that supports these things, but we trust in these things because they're, they're found in God's Word. And there, uh, there's more information in this article, Has the Ark Been Found?, written by Tim, and he talks about some of the ex uh, people have gone on explorations there and the, the evidence that they've found. And it's, it's actually just a geologic formation. It happens when you get mud flows coming down a mountain, and it, there's some obstruction that hits it, and it carves the area around. around it. And if, if you, you can look at that site on Google Maps. You type in Noah's Ark Turkey, it'll take you right there. And you can, zoom, you can zoom out a little bit, you can see that shape, and then just start hovering around. Look around in other areas, and guess what you'll find? A bunch of shapes just like that. This one just happens to be similar to the, the, the size of the Ark. Now, it's about 560 feet in length, so that's 50 feet longer than what we built down in Williamstown. That's but pretty so you'd large have to, cubit. You'd have to have a cubit that's about my size, 22-inch cubit. Um, and so it's the that's only one of the dimensions. So when they mention it's the Ark of Biblical Dimensions... They're only talking about the length. What about the width? Right. It's much wider than the biblical width. So, so they have the to say, fell out oh, well, the walls fell out. And they're trying to explain that part away. And they don't know how deep this, this structure is. Yeah. So just because it claims to be the biblical dimension, notice dimension, yeah. <laughs> dimensions of the ark, doesn't mean that that's true. Okay, So those things aren't necessarily lining up. So just be careful with these things. And we've got some good research on our website that you can... Uh, connect people with as these ideas come up. All right, our next article, Washington University creates segregated housing specifically for blacks. So this is coming to us from Western Washington University in Bellingham, just outside of Seattle. And they have created a black affinity housing program in this institution that is a test case to kind of create a safe space for black students, African-American students to be able to live in this housing environment that is uh, created just for them. And we've talked about a lot of these different types of situations, 
And uh, we, can, we can recognize in our country that we've had lots of tensions and difficulties with um, ethnic prejudice would be our, our better term than uh, racial bias. Because as we understand things from a biblical perspective, how many races are there? There's one, the human race. Yeah, so we can't really talk about races of people if we're all just one race with various shades of skin tone and and. We would really rather talk about ethnicities or people groups, those types of things. So here we have uh, this university setting up this housing situation, and it really has kind of developed into anti-racism becoming racism. Yeah, it's strange. They're, they're doing this in the name of being against racism, but what they're doing is dividing people rather than bringing people together. But it's strange because this one also says it's open to all students. Um, that's the interesting part toward the end. <laughs> because so, then people push back, well, what about this and what about this? Well, we can't turn anybody away from it. But we it, can't discriminate based on race, but we're going to create a whole floor of this housing unit that's based on race. Right, but we can't turn but people away. But we can't away. turn anybody away, <laughs> and so they're caught in this very interesting catch. It's, it's almost, it sounds like, and maybe this isn't the motive, but it just sounds like it's trying to be politically correct. Like, hey, look, we're doing this, but you're not really doing anything other than perhaps drumming up more tension, and it, that's not helpful. Um, what we're told to do in Scripture is to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, love one another, love your enemy. I'm, kind of covers everybody, and we're not supposed to you know, separate people by the amount of melanin that they have in their, in their skin. Just... No, we shouldn't be judging people based on those things. Right. As, we, as we think about those issues and the, the sinful attitudes that people have, there is a solution to those things, and that solution is the gospel. It's sin that has, has tainted all of those relationships, that's caused all of those issues, all of those tensions, and it's sin that needs to be dealt with. And how do we deal with sin in this broken, cursed world? The well, gospel. The gospel. <laughs> and that that's, has been done for us on the cross. For, for those of who are here today, and people online can look this up, but uh, when you go through the exhibits, we have one on Babel. And there is a picture in that exhibit of two little twin girls uh, sitting with a mom and dad. Mom and dad are both what we would say are middle brown. Mm -hmm. And the twin girls, one of them is blonde hair, blue eye, and skin fairer than mine. And the other one is dark skin, brown hair, uh, brown eyes, brown curly hair. What most people would say, this is African-American and this is Caucasian. They're twin sisters, same mom and same dad, born minutes apart. They're not different races. And it's beautiful. In yeah. fact, there's a lot of examples of what they call biracial twins, but they're not different races. They're human. And they are equal uh, because we're all made in God's image. So it's not... Yeah, that you're, that you're, value is assigned to us not on any external or genetic characters, but on the fact that we're made in the image of God. Amen. And because we're all created in Adam and fallen in Adam, we all have the hope of finding salvation in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the hope we can find in the gospel. Yep. And that's why when we talk about the seven seas, the confusion one, Babel explains how... The, the different people groups yeah. and everything came about. We had a question about that on, on YouTube. Yeah, if we had more time, we would get into that, but that's that's the, sure. the answer to that. Um, going back to our ARC story, several people have mentioned, yeah, we don't think we'll find it. They probably dismantled it to use for wood. There wasn't uh, a lot of tree. Those are yeah, possibilities. Yeah, maybe, maybe some degree. I mean, the Bible yeah. does talk about Noah living in a tent mm -hmm. afterwards, so I don't know that they had a big log home or anything. But uh, Or other people later could, yeah. have, could have found it and used right. it for those things sure. or for fuel. Mm-hmm. 
All right, next story. Fossilized footprints in New Mexico are earliest unequivocal evidence of people in the Americas. So there's been some debate uh, among the evolutionists, particularly about how long ago did people who were moving out of Africa and spreading around the world make it to the Americas? Now, the, the typical idea is that they moved across the Aleutian land bridge and when the water was low, so they moved across the area. I we would think of, of um, now as Russia into Alaska through that area and down into the regions of Washington and, and into the United States. So the earliest evidence they have is tools from the Clovis people around 13,000 years ago, and then some years ago... From their dating. Yeah, from their, from their dating perspective. And then some years ago, that was moved uh, way back, doubled in time to 26,000 years at a cave site in Mexico. And now here we have some very interesting footprints that have been uncovered in New Mexico, and this pushes the date into the period of around 21 to 23,000 years ago. And this is during what we would think of as the uh, glacial, the last glacial maximum. Now that last glacial maximum is of course an evolutionary perspective, and we wouldn't agree with that from a biblical timescale, uh, but the Ice Age really fits nicely into the biblical model. The Ice Age. The Ice so Age. So the other statement, the last glacial maximum, is because they believe in a whole bunch of Ice Ages spread out over millions of years, each of them lasting for 10 to 100,000 years, and but one ice age caused by the, the flood, and that, so that would be a post-flood ice age. And yeah, during that time, you have more water trapped on land, and you would have land, a land bridge, what would be called Beringia, or the Aleutian Bridge, going from what is modern-day Russia to Alaska, and people could cross there. We have no problem with that. Um, it's just the timing of that would be post-Babel. Uh, yeah. so. so as the flood is happening, we have all this volcanic activity, the continent's moving, we're generating a lot of heat and energy from inside the earth that's heating up the waters, that's causing lots of evaporation, there's lots of debris in the atmosphere, that creates the perfect scenario for an ice age because we've got hot um, evaporation with all that moisture in the air, that's clouding out the sun, and then we're getting lots of precipitation to fall, which is creating cool environments, and we're accumulating all this ice, Perfect conditions for that ice age. So that water is leaving the oceans, accumulating on the land, and we see these massive ice sheets forming. Uh, right here where we are in northern Kentucky, we're kind of at the southern boundary of where those sheets go. You drive just to the north side of Cincinnati, and everything gets really flat because that's where everything got planed off by those, those ice sheets. And so here we have an explanation of how these people were moving about, and they're trying to understand that from that perspective. So we can totally agree with the fact that this was uh, a people group that probably moved over here during that ice age. But we don't have to limit that in the biblical perspective to just traveling over here by foot. And they actually mention traveling by boat in this article as well. They're thinking just traveling along yeah, the shoreline. Yeah, traveling basically. along the shoreline. Yeah. But there's no reason in our understanding that these people couldn't have been using boats because... Well, we just did an article last week on the Polynesians <laughs> sailing all over the Pacific Ocean, yes. and, uh, which is so impressive that they've been, they were able to do that. And, yeah. Uh, so here we have some, some interesting evidence, and they're using carbon dating to date little seeds that are found in the sediment along with these footprints and placing this around 21,000 years. Uh, but we can't trust that carbon dating because it's based on a lot of assumptions 
that use uniformitarian views rather than um, catastrophic views of how the world operates. And we've got a list of those assumptions in the starting points exhibit, the first one you walk into as you begin the walkthrough. So if you haven't gone through there yet, check it out. If you have gone through there but you didn't see that, go back and check it out. It's right at the beginning of the walkthrough. So we've got some cool evidence here of some fossil footprints. You can see them uh, laid out here. You can see the sediment layers that have been deposited over time. And in those layers, those footprints are clearly preserved, mostly juveniles and children, with a few adults sprinkled in there as well. And here we just have an example of post-flood people living in this environment and uh, spreading out after Babel, populating the Americas here, and giving us some very interesting history to think about. Uh, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen is doing a lot of work in yeah. this area right now. He'll be releasing a book uh, hopefully next spring that's going to talk about the, the transfer of these peoples all over the world. I uh, got a little sneak preview of that last uh, last month, so looking forward to seeing more of that work coming out next uh, year. You're a nerd. Uh, well, I can't <laughs> help it. It's also cool. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of, well, maybe not interesting. I don't know if it's the right word. Maybe it is. Uh, William Lane Craig explores the headwaters of the human race. This comes to us from Christianity Today. Now, if you're familiar with William Lane Craig, he is a uh, most often known as a philosopher and theologian who presents a lot of ideas based in uh, the Big Bang cosmology and teaching ideas out of that and is now dealing with uh, writing a systematic theology book. So he's getting a lot of traction based around those things. And this is um, the, one of the first volumes here is dealing with this issue of where did humanity come from and looking at uh, the structure of the human race. And rather than sticking with what we would understand to be a biblical interpretation of uh, Adam and Eve being the first two humans who were specially created by God in a supernatural act, he's leaning toward a little bit different view of those things. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> he has been... Uh over time, uh, he's been buying into a lot of the, the billions of years. In fact, for a long time, he's been promoting that. I remember trying to listen to his series on the Gospel of John where, that he was teaching in Sunday school, and he, he just couldn't stop talking about the Big Bang over and over and over again. He just kept pushing the Big Bang. I thought, what does that have to do with John? And it was all in the beginning, I mean, several classes. But he just seems like he can't talk about anything having to do with creation without trying to push the Big Bang cosmology, which is strange. Um, because it is not consistent with the Bible in, in any way, shape, or form. We've got articles on our website. Terry Mortensen outlines 23 differences in the order of events between Genesis 1 and the Big Bang um, evolutionary idea. So you can't just say, this is the way God did it, unless you're going to completely reinterpret Genesis 1. Well, lately he is now reinterpreting Genesis 2 and 3, which does not surprise a lot of us um, who have followed him. And by the way, I'm not, I don't want this to sound like I'm, saying the guy's not a believer. I know sometimes we get people who get really fired up about this, like, oh, he's, he's not even a Christian. He's going to burn. He's all that. That, that's not the issue here, okay? Does he, has he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? And I think the answer to that is yes. Now, ultimately, God's the one who knows that. Uh, he did his, one of his dissertations on the reliability of the manuscripts for the resurrection, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, and it's, it's fantastic. It's outstanding. Um, so, don't respond that way, but an, analyze the arguments. Rather than attacking the person, analyze the arguments. What is, is he, he saying? teaching a serious error here? Yeah, he's teaching would, a very serious say, error. We would say and, so. And he'd be, the, he would be right at the front of the line saying, yes, believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But when it comes to this, 
He's saying, yeah, you can't trust the Bible the way it's written, like the literal way, because it's mytho-history. Roger, what is mytho-history? So we want to make sure we handle this fairly. When you hear the word myth, you probably think of something that's not true. But that's not the way he's intending this, so let's let his own words speak for what he and, means. And a lot of people in literature and everything don't mean that either. Yeah. So go ahead. So he means by mytho-history, quote, a narrative concerning real people and events told in the language of myth in order to ground a culture's identity and institutions in the events of the primordial past. So he's talking about something that he believes communicates some form of truth, but the question is how do we understand those elements and what do those elements look like? And the problem comes when we get to the next part of his understanding of what Genesis 2 and 3 specifically communicate, and he calls these fantastic elements. And this is where we really run into some significant problems with his theological understanding. He, said, he starts to talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, and he compares some of the things in the Epic of Gilgamesh to the Bible and how there's fantastic elements like the bull Taurus, which is the constellation coming down to earth and wrestling that and then cutting it up into pieces and distributing the meat. That's a fantastic tale. Right, okay. and he even says that, that these are so extraordinary as to be palpably false. So if we take what's written in Genesis in a straightforward way, such as a talking serpent or what he called a magical tree, which actually just automatically kind of poisons the well against the Bible and yes. say it's a magical tree. Okay, that's not the biblical terminology for it. Um, so if you believe those things were actual and literal, then it's, it's false, it's demonstrably false. Yeah, let me just read what he says here. Similarly, the primordial history of Genesis 1 to 11 includes elements which, if taken literally, would be so extraordinary as to be clearly false. Take, for example, the magical trees with fruit that if eaten would impart the knowledge of good and evil or immortality, or the presence of a talking snake that tempts the man and woman to sin. Now, these are different from supernatural or miraculous elements which, which concern events God brings about directly. So well, he's basically that, saying that you, that these it, things you can't read didn't it. happen. Right, and it's not different from supernatural in the sense that it's preter, it's still the serpent is still preternatural. This is Satan who's involved yes. in this. Um, does he believe that Balaam's donkey didn't speak? Because that would be, I mean, and that's not written in mytho-history at all. Nobody would say that that passage is mytho-history. So is he denying that? And it, yeah, it gets, um, it's frustrating when you read this. Here's what he says later on, because here's what he's really getting to, is that Adam and Eve came from the apes. Now, he, this, is what he, this is where he's going with it, from ape-like ancestors, um, where at some point you have to believe that God may have brought about both a biological and spiritual renovation of a hominin form that would make it truly human, biologically capable of sustaining a rational soul. What does the Bible say about the creation of man? That we came from a pre-existing being that looked like us? And at some point, God infuses a spirit and a soul or whatever, and somehow turns that into a first full human? Is that what the Bible says? I seem to remember something about God taking so dust The Lord God the man. formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, he would, I think, based on what he's saying, is that's so extraordinary as to be palpably false, except for when it's talking about what God is doing. Well, that is talking about what God is doing. Yeah. So, yes, we can straight out believe that. So even according to the things he's setting up, he's just contradicting himself. So he's but, saying that if there are propositional statements in the Bible, we have to believe they're true. But then that's a fantastical claim. We can't believe that's true. So how do we understand what he really believes? So it gets so confusing. Where is the hominin form in that passage? So that, by hominin, what he's meaning is there is some type of common descent. So we would believe in an evolutionary transition from some single-celled 
molecular structures all the way up to uh, living things, all the way to ape-like creatures, some hominin or hominid form that then God refashioned to be the first human. Right, and so he says that this is, it's mytho-history, so it's about real people and events in the language of a myth to ground a culture's identity. In other words, how is the culture that this is written to going to understand it? And he, he says things like, well, they would never take it the way young earth creationists say it. He, they, would take it they would understand this is just fantastical stuff. Really? How did the, that culture take it? Well, well I bet we have some other Bible authors who uh, can yeah, so let's see. Let's see. We have Genesis 3.19 later in the same same author, obviously, just the yes. next chapter, uh, when Adam, after Adam sins, God says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. He didn't say ape-like creature. Man was made from the dust of the ground. That's the very next chapter. Okay, that's still Genesis 1 through 11. That's mytho-history, right? So let's find something else. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 3, you, re- you return man to dust and say, Return, O sons of men. Return? Well, how do you return to the dust unless you were dust in the first place. And who wrote Psalm 90, Roger? That's called the Psalm of... No, it's Moses. That's the Psalm of Moses. Who's the one that wrote Genesis? Moses. How did Moses understand this? Dust. So apparently Moses is interpreting his own work. Right, and he's told us what it is. It's not to an So the analogy of Scripture here helps us understand what the Bible is saying from the first place. Right, I know I get a little worked up about this, but (laughs) uh, Ecclesiastes... All are from dust, all from the dust, and all return to the dust. Later on, that's 320, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. The, throughout Scripture, so that's Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived. He says that. Um, but what about the New Testament? I mean, this is the Old Testament. Well, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 45, compare, talking about the future bodily resurrection? And he's using, well, listen to what he quotes. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So he's quoting that passage from Genesis 2 where God yes. just made man from the dust. The last Adam, became, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Sounds pretty clear to me. It's very clear how that culture understood that passage, that man was made from the dust of the ground. You cannot get around that unless you're going to say, I'm going to, unless you're doing this with Scripture. And that's, here's what it is. He is trusting the words of men, some scientists, rather than the word of God. And that's dangerous. Yeah. Praise God he doesn't do it when it comes to the resurrection. Okay? But he is doing it when it comes to creation. And that's a danger because as soon as you do that, you start to unravel Scripture. Yeah. Because the Bible is very consistent from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, we've got a book that deals with this whole search for Adam because you've got a lot of different theologians out there, a lot of scientists who are writing books about Adam trying to say, well, he was, when, when was first Adam and Eve? When were they? they were so Dr. Craig says he, he places him at Homo heidelbergensis, which is 400,000 years ago well, or so. I think it's middle Pleistocene, right? which is Ice Age, which is post-flood. So none of the people pre-flood, Adam wouldn't be even... <laughs> oh. it's, it's very interesting. So here <laughs> we, have, we have a very clear case of are we going to put our trust in who Adam and Eve were in the ever-changing, very new concepts of biological evolution okay, that have only been developed in the last 150 years, or are we going to look at the timeless Word of God 
the one who created these people and knows how they exist. And, and just we'd one urge other... you to, to point to God's word in those things. Right, and so he has to believe Eve did not come from yeah. Adam's side, from, even though Paul in 1 Timothy 2 talks about that. So how did that original audience take it? Uh, yeah, very, wound me up, Roger. Clear. All right, well, this one goes to several scholars contributed to this book talking about different things to show that, yes, just as Scripture teaches, you can take it, God's word as true from the beginning to the end. Yes. Um, yeah. So I strongly recommend that one. And um, let's, let's try and tackle this one. Yeah, it's it's on similar, a very but... related note. A professor has written another book here called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. And so here we have a uh, another author who's written to try and explain this book and, and promote it and get people to look at it and consider it. And the, the book addresses a lot of issues. And one of the, one of the phrases here that caught my attention, uh, Ray, the author, says, instead, I accept, uh, rather than talking about the contrast between, between science and religion, she says, instead, I accept science evidence. After all, a fact is true whether I believe it or not. And this happens so often, and this is the same type of issue we're talking about as we deal with Dr. Craig's arguments. This is not a matter of the evidence, okay? We're not debating the evidence here. We can all look at the same evidence and analyze those things, but it's an interpretation of the evidence. Scientists don't um, deal with, <laughs> we don't make lots of claims about evidence. We make interpretations of those evidence, and those interpretations are what we're trying to understand when we look at things about the past. Yeah, so for example, you can everybody can look at the Grand Canyon and say, mm -hmm. there's a fact, the Grand Canyon is there, and they can all agree on it. And you can, but the question is, how were those rock layers formed, and when were they formed, and all of that suddenly becomes interpretation. We have the record of the one who was there, and yeah. so we're going to take that. And answering the question on the book, were there baby dinosaurs on the ark? Well, from an evolutionary perspective, they would take the view that no, because their interpretation of the evidence that we all have is that those dinosaurs died out 66 million years before there were ever humans on the scene. But from our point of view, Noah took two of each kind, which would include the dinosaurs. Now, I don't know that he brought babies, but juveniles make juveniles, sense. Some... But when the animals get off the ark, it does say they got off according to their family. So it's possible that some of them did have babies during that time. Mm -hmm. So... So another example been. of how as we examine this, the apparent conflicts between science and religion, we don't have to let those things be conflicts. It's a, really a time to stop and think, all right, where am I going to start from? What's my starting point? What's my authority? And our goal, our, our desire as a ministry is to be equipping you and helping you think through these things, that your starting point would be the Word of God, that it's the only true and sure foundation that we have that we can be putting our hope in that, we can be putting our hope for salvation in Jesus as our Savior and looking for that future hope of salvation in all those things. Amen. And the reason the gospel makes sense, as I explained in my presentation here a little while ago, it makes sense because of what happened in Genesis. The first man, Adam, brought, sin, brought death into this world through his sin. And the reason that the solution to sin is the physical death of the Son of God is because of that's what that's the consequence of sin is physical death. And so the solution is the physical death of the Son of God on the cross and then the physical bodily resurrection. Mm -hmm. If you take Dr. Craig's view, you've just undermined the gospel. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe the gospel, but he's undercut the historical foundation for it, the, the biblical and theological foundation for it as well. And it's, it's always safer to just stick with God's word. God knows what he's doing, and we can trust him. All right, that's all the time we've got for you today. We hope to see you back on Monday for Answers News. God bless.